Okay, is this microphone on? Can you guys hear me? Excellent, fantastic. So um, first off, I asked Josh if I could bring a whiteboard up here, or maybe a blackboard, because it'd be a lot more comfortable that way. That's how I'm used to talking. But unfortunately, he said no. Uh, but in any case, um, before we get started today, um, I want to ask you a question. In particular, have you ever in your life felt like you're facing some sort of insurmountable obstacle? Some really big issue in your life, and it seems beyond your control. So maybe it's something that you're going through today. It could be financial problems or relationship issues or maybe a health problem. <clears throat> and I'm sure that at one time or another, every single one of us has felt like we're facing a situation like this, and we may have felt hopeless in light of it. So what are we supposed to do in situations like this? And in particular, where do we find hope in face of an insurmountable obstacle? So today's text, Genesis 14, is actually going to speak to us about these matters. And through it, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that God faithfully delivers on his promises to you, no matter how insurmountable the obstacles may seem. And secondly, that God's faithfulness is not thwarted by our own shortcomings and failings. And lastly, that the proper response to this is a transformed life. So let's go ahead and read Genesis 14. <coughs> I'm going to read the full chapter. I wish I looked up beforehand what page it was in your Bibles, so unfortunately I did not, but... Oh, hey, look. Fantastic. Somebody's planning ahead. So in any case, um, Genesis 14. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedaliamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goan, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedaliamar, but in the thirteenth year they had rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Kedaliamar and the kings that were with him came out and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Sheva Kiriatim. And the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Emishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who live in Hazaz Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admah and the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrived for battle, arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sedim, against Kedaliamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedim was full of tar pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled into the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, in his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and those were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back uh, his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedaliamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
Now, he was a priest of God Most High. Melchizedek blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong thong, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who are with me on our eshkol. In memory, let them take their share. Okay, the hardest part of the sermon is done. There's a ton of names in there, right? I, I counted no less than like 35 different places and names of this Amraphel and Kedaliamar and Emishpat, etc. So first off, before we go any further whatsoever, we have to figure out what in the world is going on here. So in the first 11 verses of this chapter, we have a description of a war. In fact, the very first war recorded in the Bible here. And it's a war of nine armies. So I can have a picture of uh, modern-day Middle East right here. This is where all this takes place. And on the one side, down over here by the Salt Sea, um, yes, I have a pointer, excellent. Uh, Down by the Salt Sea over here were the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. These were under covenant with the king of the Babylonian region, this guy named Kedaliamar. He lived up in over near modern-day Baghdad. So these five kings down here, along with the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, they decided they didn't want to be under Kedaliamar's rule anymore, so they rebelled. By the way, Kedaliamar is really hard to say, and it's a very foreign-sounding name, so I'm just going to call him the king of Babylon, because this is a Babylonian region, he conquered that one as well. Well, the king of Babylon didn't like that his people had rebelled, so he gathered up three of his allies, and he decided to march down and try to quash this rebellion. If we zoom in a little bit in this particular area, we'll see that on his way, this shows kind of the march that the king of Babylon took, he decided to conquer a whole bunch of other cities along his way. So he conquered people in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, and Ham, etc., etc., and then defeated the king of Sodom and Gomorrah down here by the Dead Sea. And this actually brings us to the main uh, source of conflict in our passage here. Lot is taken captive along with his family, because he had been living next to Sodom. And what follows next, thanks, by the way, we can take that down. What follows next is probably one of the greatest upset victories that we've ever seen. And through it, we're going to see that God faithfully delivers on his promises. So how are we going to be able to see that? seems like a little bit of a disconnect. Well, for one thing, I'm a mathematician as Jeremy said. So I love details. I live and breathe them. So we're going to look at two details here, and you'll be able to see the point that I'm attempting to illustrate. So first off, let's contrast the size of Abram's army, if you could even call it that. He was only 318 men, versus the army of the king of Babylon. So one of those cities that was conquered on the way down, this uh, city, Ashtaroth Karnaim, In it lived this really large people group. This people group was called the Rephaim, and these were known to be an extremely tall people group. In fact, one of the people who survived from this attack, one of the Rephaim, later on in Deuteronomy, it's mentioned that he has a bed that's 13 feet long. You gotta be pretty tall to have a bed that's 13 feet long. In fact, this is like Shaquille O'Neal kind of big, or maybe Yao Ming, eight-time NBA All-Star for the Houston Rockets. 
this guy? Yeah. I don't know about you, but I would not want to go into hand-to-hand -hand combat with this guy. So here's another gratuitous picture of him next to a normal-sized person. Yes. So Yao Ming here, he's a little bit shorter than those people of the Rephaim. However, the king of Babylon was able to conquer this city with those filled with people that tall, apparently without any fanfare. In fact, all our text says is, uh, and they defeated the Rephaim, just like this. So this is quite the force to be reckoned with. So much so, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, the ones who had rebelled, they had picked the Valley of Sidim specifically because it was home turf. It was filled with these different tar pits. Interestingly, you can actually still go to the Middle East and you can see the tar bubbling up from the Dead Sea. But in any case, they had picked this because they were hoping that it would be sort of a trap for this advancing army and slow them down. They knew where the pits were. King of Babylon and his army, not so familiar with the territory. But apparently, the king of Babylon advanced so ferociously that King of Sodom and Gomorrah and his allies, they forgot where they were and basically fell into the very trap that they were trying to set. <clears throat> So hopefully you see the kind of obstacle that Abram was up against. 318 men versus this huge, ferocious army that just was able to defeat very tall people and rout four other kings. But what happened? Not only was Abram able to defeat the Babylonian king and his army, but he continued to pursue them back, it says, all the way up towards Dan, basically chasing the king of Babylon back to where he had come. So how is this even possible? 318 men versus this massive force. Abram facing this obstacle, went right in with the 318 men. How did he do it? Well, you might remember from last week, if you were here, that we've been seeing God repeatedly make promises to Abram. In fact, over in chapter 12, God says, I will bless you and make your name great. And then God repeats it again. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And in chapter 13, just before our text, it says, I will give you and your descendants all the land which you see. And then God again in chapter 15 says, count the stars, so shall your descendants be. So this whole story right here about this amazing upset defeat, this is sandwiched between God repeatedly making promises to Abram. Promises to keep him safe, to make his name great. <clears throat> so how did Abram, this nomadic sheep herder, end up defeating this massive and terrible army? Because God was on his side. God had made promises to Abram, and God delivered on them, even in the face of this massive Babylonian army. Yeah, that's all fine, well, and good, you might say. What does this have to do with you and me? Well, this passage is but one very small example of God faithfully delivering on his promises. Now, these promises that I just mentioned right here, God had made them specifically to Abram. But God has made arguably better promises to you and to me. Promises of eternal life, forgiveness from sin, grace and direct access to God. And I could go on and on. If you're a Christian here today, these promises, these are yours and they are backed with the same divine weight and assurance that was demonstrated when God facilitated Abram's victory over the king of Babylon. <clears throat> so let me go back to what I asked in the beginning. What obstacles are you facing right now? What makes you feel like you're, I don't know, attempting to empty the ocean with a teacup? 
<clears throat> Are you struggling with a serious illness in your life or in a family member's? Are you feeling weighed down and depressed by the day-to-day uh, -day grind of life? I know that's something that I struggle with. Do you feel maybe hopelessly unable to mend a broken relationship? <clears throat> Are you in some aspect of your life facing similar long odds that Abram faced when he faced the king of Babylon? Maybe you feel like there's no way to go through or get through these. The same God that fulfilled his promise to Abram, he's your God, and he will make good on his promises. <clears throat> that illness that you're facing, God may not choose to remove that illness from your life, but he has promised you eternal life with a perfected body. That struggle with depression that you're having, you may continue to experience it in this life, but God has promised to renew your strength. You will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not be faint. That broken relationship that you're struggling with, <clears throat> he may not choose to mend it in this life, but he will wipe every tear from your eye. He will make good on his promises to you. God has made promises and he will fulfill them. If not in this life, then in the next. This passage here is evidence of that. Similarly, if you're not a Christian here today, these promises don't belong to you, but they can. And the greatest of news is that they are offered to you freely. These promises have already been paid for by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you confess him as Lord, believe in him, you can have access to these very same promises with the same weight of assurance and surety of them being fulfilled. <clears throat> this sounds fantastic. But you might argue, this is Abram, right? He's one of the, he's going to have his name changed to Abraham, and he's one of the greats of the Bible. He's called the father of us all and a man of great faith. So maybe this massive upset defeat, some part of that was due to the fact that he enjoyed the special relationship with God, that he was extra faithful, and because of that, God decided to bless him. Surely, Abraham's faith played some role in God giving him favor, right? So this actually brings me to my second point. God's faithfulness is not thwarted by our weaknesses or our failings. So I don't know about you, but at least in my own life, I've struggled with periodically thinking that God's favor in my life is somehow contingent upon my own actions. Maybe it's due to my being an, an overwhelming introvert which doesn't even make sense, it should be underwhelming introvert. But in any case, I'm acutely aware of my own failings. I go through cycles of thinking if I don't do X, Y, and Z, good Christian thing, God is gonna somehow withhold favor from my life. And this is probably due to the very performance-driven culture that we live in, right? You do this, that, and the other assignment, you get this grade. We had graduation that happened just recently, right? And I assume that you have to go on, you know, my OSU or my degrees and make sure you've ticked off every single one of your boxes before you get to graduate, et cetera. We tend to treat God in this same way. <clears throat> we treat him as this checklist. If we do this, that, and the other good Christian thing, then he'll give us favor. Kind of like treating a God like a, a cosmic gumball machine, right? You put in the quarters of good work, turn the button, and you get out, get out the blessings. And if you don't do these good Christian things, if you don't read your Bible every day and pray before meals and things along this, then that justifies the hardships in your life. It's what I get for not living up to my perception of God's checklist. 
Well, what does our passage have to say about that viewpoint? First off, let's begin by dispelling the notion that Abram was some sort of faithfulness guru who was able to take God at his word at every turn. In fact, if you flip back just to chapter 12, and last week we talked about this, God promised Abram that he would keep him safe and give him all the land. And then after that famine, Abram um, is in the land of Egypt, and what does he do the first time that he faces trouble? Ooh, he doesn't believe God, and he decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands and pretend that his wife is actually his sister because he isn't trusting that God is going to keep him safe. That really doesn't sound like faithfulness or taking God at his word to me. And in fact, right after our own chapter, we're going to see in chapter 15, God reiterates his promises to Abram, and then that he's going to get tons of descendants. And what does Abram do? He immediately tries to take matters into his own hands again, and hatches a plan with his wife Sarai to try and have his descendants through a concubine, again doubting God. So this chapter here, this chapter 14, is again sandwiched between Abram failing to take God at his word. So the logical conclusion is this, that amazing upset and the uh, ability to go and rescue Lot was not at all due to Abram's belief in God's promises. In fact, you could argue that this victory in God delivering on his promises is in spite of Abram's failings. This has immediate and important consequences in our own life. God's faithfulness is not thwarted by our shortcomings or failings. And this is backed up in other places of Scripture, too, right? Over in Ephesians where it says that our uh, salvation is not of the result of us somehow earning it. So the next time that you're tempted to believe that God's faithfulness is contingent upon your ability to do the good Christian life, think about this story right here. God delivered on his promises to make Abram great, to bless him and give him the land immediately after Abram failed. And not only that, but God gave him this upset defeat, even though he, would, he knew that Abram would turn around and in the very next scene, doubt him again. Now, of course, this doesn't give us license to live life however we want to. This is supported in other parts of Scripture. But rather, it reassures us that God is not this cosmic gumball machine. We can rest in the fact that God's promises are not contingent on our feeble attempts to earn his favor. God's promises are absolute and unfailing, not contingent upon our failings. So let's go ahead and turn to the last point. How should we respond in light of these truths here? Well, first off, we've seen God faithfully deliver on his promises, even if Abram doesn't trust him. But Apparently, in the first 16 verses of this, Abram is completely unaware of that fact. If you recall, when we were reading this, God actually isn't mentioned at all up until verse 17, when Melchizedek arrives upon the scene. And Melchizedek sets all the previous events that just happened in their proper theological context. In fact, This verse right here, or this scene where Melchizedek comes on, this is really the key to the entire passage. If you were to remove the scene with Melchizedek, this story here would be a completely different kind of story. 
So because of that, we should probably try to figure out who this Melchizedek character is. In our text, it doesn't tell us a whole lot, right? It just says um, he was king of Salem and also a priest. And that's basically it. It doesn't tell us anything else. Interestingly enough, Melchizedek is only mentioned a couple other places in name very briefly in the Old Testament, and it's not until we get over to Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews actually discusses Melchizedek in a little bit more detail. So if you don't mind, I'm going to turn over to Hebrews 7. And Hebrews 7 here is a description of Melchizedek. The author says in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He abides a priest perpetually. Then the author goes on in a little bit more detail about uh, the role that Melchizedek plays. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, the author says, now the main point in what has been said is this. I always appreciate it when the Bible tells me what the main point is, right in the chapter itself. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest speaking here about Jesus. He's drawing a connection between Jesus and Melchizedek, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So what the author of, Mel of uh, Hebrews here is telling us is that Melchizedek serves as a foreshadowing of Jesus. Melchizedek was a man whose life was designed by God specifically to point to God. Okay, how does Melchizedek do this in our particular uh, chapter here? The key is in Melchizedek's blessing. If you look at that blessing, <clears throat> Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram, of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Melchizedek, in this very short blessing right here, communicates to Abram that God was the one in control, God was the one who had given him victory. And Abram definitely understands what Melchizedek is trying to say. This Phraseology that Melchizedek uses, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek says that twice. This is a special name for God. This is El Elyon, and this is actually the very first time that it shows up in the Bible, and it's probably the first time that Abram has ever heard it. And Abram turns around and uses that name for God again. When he talks to the king of Sodom, Abram says, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So Abram got it. Melchizedek had given Abram the perspective that he needed, allowing him to see that God was the one in, that was in control. God was the one who had actually given him that victory. And this perspective radically altered Abram. How radically? Well, he was ostensibly the richest guy on earth at this point, right? He had just amassed the wealth of over 11 cities and kings by defeating the king of Babylon. He had a bunch of money. However, Abraham's values suddenly went 
or, or took a big shift. Abram no longer valued material wealth. With God being the one who was going to provide for him, what did he need all the riches of war for? God had given, given him the victory, and we see Abram valuing God's providing for him more than the material treasure that he could have had. So understanding the things that we've been talking about brings about this radical shift in values. So we just saw this shift uh, undertaken in Abram's life. So too, when we properly understand what Christ has actually done for us, the things of this world that we previously held on to so tightly, material wealth, comfort, security, these things pale in comparison and seem comparatively worthless. So this actually reminds me of uh, the life story of Charles W. Coulson. You might know him better as Chuck Coulson. So Chuck Coulson was an ex-military captain turned lawyer who was special counsel to President Nixon. Coulson described himself in this role as being valuable to the president since I was willing to be ruthless in order to get things done. Others had described him as being an evil genius. Well, Chuck Colson got involved with the Watergate scandal and was later convicted of conspiracy and served time in prison. It was actually at this time that a friend had given him a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and through it, Colson became a Christian. This completely turned his life around. He underwent the same sort of value shift that I'm talking about here. He abandoned politics, which he had previously held on to so dear, and instead devoted himself to evangelism. He later went on to found the Prison Ministry Fellowship, authored over 30 books, became an influential evangelical leader. This is the kind of radical transformation that happens when you realize that God is in control. God delivers on his promises, and that he desires a personal relationship with you. These things that you used to hold on to so dear become inconsequential in comparison. Colson used to value proximity to power, but he gave that up knowing or after understanding what God had done for him. And so consider us today in our, in our present lives, how materialistic our culture is, right? We go after high-paying jobs. We want the next new technology. We try to tone our bodies. Not, not me, definitely, but some of us. <laughs> what we need to realize is that these things, they aren't actually ours. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Everything that we have was given to us by him, including the air that we breathe. We need to understand that God is the ultimate provider, and nothing you have is truly yours. And what do we get when we embrace this change? We understand God is in control? Well, thankfully, God tells us in the very next chapter at the start of it, God says to Abram, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you, your reward shall be very great. It's actually quite nice that God says this because Abram had just given away all the spoils of war. I would be kind of scared if I was Abram. So like, what am I going to do for money now? God reassures him, I am a shield for you. Your reward shall be very great. So what do you get? You get the God of the universe providing for you. <clears throat> and this is going to bring about an amazing change in your life. No longer will we need to rely on our own strengths, if you could even call it that with how frequently we, we fail, we're going to be provided for by the God of the universe. And of course, this is not prosperity theology, which fallaciously argues that belief in God is going to bring you about material wealth here on earth. However, this is better summarized in the, in the words of Paul from Philippians when he says, I have learned to be content in whatever my circumstances. I know how to get along with humble means and how to live in prosperity. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
So do we want to be free from the pressure to go out and take it for yourself? Do you want the creator of the universe to be the one who provides for you? Receive this gift that God is offering you. Take the perspective that everything is actually ultimately God's, and he will faithfully provide to you, giving you the ability to be content no matter your circumstances. And beyond contentedness, one of the other immediate consequences of this is relief. Relief from worrying about if we're good enough to cut it. Relief from worrying over your future because in the end, God has your back. It gives us hope. You have been assured an eternity in heaven with God. And you can rest in that whenever you face troubles in your life. Another thing that it does is it actually spurs us on to action. Because free from worrying about whether or not <clears throat> we have the right skills to bring about something, if we understand that God is really the ultimate one who's in control, we don't need to hesitate about going on that mission trip or reaching out to that uh, neighbor of yours. We don't need to worry about that because God ultimately is the one who will see it come to fruition. So hopefully that will embolden us to action. So in conclusion, let's think back to those questions that I asked in the beginning. So what were the obstacles that you're facing in your life? So often these obstacles seem out of our control and beyond our ability to overcome them. <clears throat> and we spend so much time worrying about how are we going to fix them and despairing when we can't. And you, and you might feel that if you don't overcome them, you might be found wanting or weak. <clears throat> this passage here speaks a very different truth to us and one we so badly need to hear. God is in control. He is faithful in spite of our failings and shortcomings. And he will faithfully deliver on his promises to you no matter how big the problems you're facing in your life. God has promised us great things, eternal life, a personal relationship with him. These things, these truths embolden us in our current circumstances, knowing that in the end, even if the circumstances don't change, God is in control, he has our best interests in mind, he will deliver on his promises. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for passages such as these that remind us that you're in control and that you love us deeply and have our best interests in mind. Please help each one of us here today to really internalize these truths and know that no matter how flawed we are, once we're in your hands, our future is secured. Please let this transform our lives, embolden us to rest in the promises that you've given to us. Lord God, I long for the day when we can be eternally with you, and I pray that you would sustain us with your word until that day comes. In your name I pray, amen.